Assalamu alaikum friends and welcome to a Muslim Mum podcast. Inshallah, I hope you are having a really good week. My name is Farhat Amin, I'm your host and today I will be speaking about um, something a bit different. We're still in on the, doing the season regarding feminism and Islam but what I thought I'd like to do is in the beginning of each podcast I'm going to share with you something that I've learned through an Islamic studies course that I'm, I've enrolled in locally and um, firstly I'd just like to really encourage you to join some kind of Islamic studies class because I'm benefiting so much from um, lessons that I go to. And, you know, especially when we have kids, um, we can sometimes neglect our own gaining knowledge. We're really good with our children. We'll send them to masjid, we'll send them to Quran class, and we neglect ourselves. And believe me, sisters, we shouldn't do that. You really should not do that. And I know a lot of times you might listen to something on a YouTube video, which is brilliant. But going to a class, writing things down, asking questions, there's, you know, nothing can um, replace that as far as your learning and your development. So I wanted to share what I'm learning and it will just be one thing each time because it's one thing I'm trying to implement in my daily practice in my life. And um, it's realistic, you know, to do it that way. So this is one of the hadith that we've studied recently, uh, and it's um, in the book by book of hadith by Haki, and the hadith is backbiting is worse than unlawful intercourse, and um, so that was a, a real eye opener for me because um, sometimes we can see backbiting as it, it's not a big deal, you know, but when it's compared to and actually, it said it's worse than unlawful intercourse. You know, the thought of going and sleeping some with someone, we wouldn't even think of doing that. And that's how we need to view backbiting. Okay, so, and one of the things backbiting can be if you say something good that a person would not want you to say about them, and also something bad. If you lie about them, then that's slander. So what I have started to do now is I imagine before, if I'm going to talk about someone, I imagine this in the room with me. And then that controls what I say. I found that that really works well, that you then think, okay, I, I can't say what I was about to say. And I'm saying, when I'm talking to my kids, I'll, if they start saying stuff, I'll say to them, would they like it if they heard you say that? Um, and that's a really good way I've found to stop myself from backbiting. And so I wanted to share that with you. I know there's also hadith, there are um, exemptions when you can talk about a person and they're, when they're not there. And so I thought I should mention that as well. And so, for example, if a, per so if a person who was unjustly treated, he can go to who is in a position to remove the injustice, like a judge or a leader, and talk about how the other person took away his rights. So that's one time you can talk about a person. Um, secondly, asking for a, um Islamic legal opinion from a person with knowledge. In such a request, um, you might mention things that happened between you and the person to then be able to get the ruling 
Okay, that's the second time. Thirdly, advising the Muslims about what is good for them in their daily life. For example, if somebody asks you about a man or woman who he intends to marry or is a partner in business, you are required to tell what you know about him in terms of his suitability for what you are asked about. And there were um you you can there are hadith relating to so I'm just giving the summarized version. Fourthly, warning Muslims and raising awareness of the enemies of Islam, especially if the enemies are from well, it should be from inside or outside, um, such as they might be Muslims, but they work, think, and plan against Islam. So if and also if the person is doing this, oh, it has to be open and public what they're doing. You can if you're warning someone about another Muslim that there's leading Muslims astray but the main thing is they have to have said this publicly so um you can't say oh I heard them someone told me they said this you know it's, mm. they publicly said something against Islam and you don't want Muslims to follow them okay but you only stick to what they actually said okay and the fittest case is um when considering uh, so when I oh is when you identify someone as blind, deaf, or mute, or handicapped. The objective is not to put them down, but only to identify as he is known. Okay, so th that's another time. But the main so Ahamda, it's that's something I learned, and I think it's I'm going to say the hadith one more time. Backbiting is worse than unlawful intercourse. Inshallah, just remember that. So let's continue our discussion regarding feminism. What I thought I would do today is showcase the views of some non-Muslim women who identify themselves as not being feminist. And I thought it would be interesting to explore the reasons why they do this. Now, I haven't been able to get them to do it for interviews. That would have been ideal. But instead, it's... Um, audio clips from YouTube or videos that they have put up. So this is their own words. It's all available on pla public platforms. I'll put links to their videos so you can watch the whole thing. Uh, and it's interesting that there are a number of women who, um, for various reasons, have identified themselves as either being anti-feminist or they disagree with feminism. But what's interesting is that their voices are drowned out actually and you don't hear about them because they are sidelined by feminists they are um some some of them have been banned from speaking at universities or if they go to you know when they try to give talks um they are you know they're actually treated really badly and um you know stereotyped as being against women's rights or you know being um pro men or women haters it's you know, when I was doing the reading, I was really surprised about how much hate they are given. And that's one reason why they are not known so publicly and um, compared to, you know, maybe famous feminists. So um, one thing I'll point out is that many of these women, they are atheists. They will be cons maybe conservatives. They will identify themselves as liberals. and. Um, it's also interesting when I've been listening to what they have said and things that they have written, they are anti-Muslim as well, and they don't agree with Islam. And something that they point out is how 
it's how Islam and feminism do not, cannot mix. And they criticize feminists for being hypocritical to women's rights by saying that how can you, for example, I'll give you an example. They will say to feminists that, who are the, why do you say you support the wearing of hijab um, when a woman actually does not have a choice to cover? When a Muslim woman, she covers because it's a command in the Quran and it's, you know, and it's narrated in hadith, you know, the description of the hijab. And that's a man who is saying it. So they point out that feminists are being hypocrites when they support women in hijab because then what they say is that those same women who cover those Muslim women, they do not support women who choose to uncover, for example, like wear not only miniskirts who choose to sleep, you know, with, you know, don't, not to not get married, um, you know, to, you know, there's this idea of um, slut walks. What that basically means is that, you know, the word slut, this was back a few years ago, the feminists began to say, we need to reclaim the word slut, that that is not an insult, but that's something we should be proud of. Because if a woman choose, a woman can choose who she sleeps with, a woman can choose to dress in, you know, very revealing, provocative clothes, and she should not be see being labelled as a slut a bad thing. That's her choice to be a slut. So what women like the women I'm going to mention, you're going to listen to in a second, they say that a Muslim woman would not go on a slut walk. So therefore, they're not supporting you. So why are you supporting them when they wear hijab? And the reason why, obviously, we would not go on a slut walk and would not choose to call ourselves slut is because. In Islam, it's forbidden. So it's. In, I just thought it was really interesting that they can see the how Islam and feminism are not cannot coexist happily, whereas unfortunately, you know, um, some Muslims they can't see that. Uh, but these women who have studied feminism. So, okay, who the first woman you're going to hear from is um, Janice Fiamengo. I'm going to let her introduce herself. I'm Janice Fiamengo. I'm a professor of English at the University of Ottawa, and I'm an anti-feminist. Many people don't like that term anti-feminist because it is adversarial. And because feminists have been hugely successful in equating feminism with support for women's equality. So to say you're anti-feminist seems to suggest that you are opposed to women's equality. But if feminism ever was about equality, and that's an interesting subject for another video, it emphatically no longer is. In the 21st century, feminism is about special privileges and advantages for women, and special exemptions from responsibility. So I am happy to claim the badge of anti-feminism because I object to an ideology and a practice that uh, sets one standard for women, supposedly because they are victims, and one harshly punitive standard for men, supposedly because they are privileged. All fair-minded people should object to unjust double standards. The dishonesty and hypocrisy of the feminist movement deserve to be exposed and denounced every day. 
Three things concern me most about modern-day feminism on university campuses, and they are going to be the general focus of my presentations. My first concern is the irrationality that has overtaken academic feminism. It promotes the idea that women's feelings are more important than objective reality or the search for truth. Claiming victimhood now trumps fact, argument, and debate. According to the feminist worldview, women must never be made to feel unsafe, not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically. They must never be triggered, as the saying goes, reminded of trauma, or made to think about things that challenge their view of themselves as permanently innocent victims. In the feminist world, women are always to be believed, always deferred to, always spoken of in hushed tones of deep sympathy. Although the idea of protecting women sounds benign, if a bit silly, it has become a potent weapon to intimidate anyone who fails to toe the party line on a wide range of subjects, including abortion, gender difference, boys' education, the criminal justice system, family law, and so on. When I tried to give a talk at the University of Ottawa in March of last year on the presumed rape culture of university campuses, not to deny that rape exists or to say that we shouldn't care about rape victims, but to argue that it is a paranoid fantasy to pretend that our culture condones rape. A group of students took it upon themselves to prevent me from speaking by blowing horns and banging drums and singing the Communist International. Why? Well, because these students believed they had the right to silence me, because what I had to say, though I never got to say it, created an unsafe space for women by denying a bedrock belief of feminism. If that kind of craziness in the name of protecting women sounds like a weird, isolated phenomenon, unfortunately it isn't. It exists on campuses all across North America, and it is fast making it nearly impossible for anyone to challenge any facet of feminist dogma. And that's a big problem for academic debate. Janice raises some really insightful points regarding how feminists tell us to think. In particular, her view on female solidarity, um, it's, I found that to be a real eye-opener. You know, what she was saying was we are told to unconditionally show solidarity with women just because we are women, you know, for that pure fact. Um, you know, and just if we think about it, we didn't choose to be women. So if we had been men, we wouldn't be showing that solidarity to, to women. But regardless, okay, you know, there is this idea that women should always stick together. We should support each other. We should empower each other. You know, there's that word empower is used so much nowadays and it's always relating to women. Um, and so now what I'm thinking is, why should we not question the beliefs and actions of fellow women, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim? You know, there is nothing wrong with doing that. You know, to begin with, feminists have told women, you know, historically they were telling each other, you know, we should support each other, and, um, you know, so, so it was about the vote, it was about, um, you know, work rights, procreation rights. And now the way it is, it's, you know, that we need to support each other because we face discrimination. So disabled women, women of color, 
and now LGBTQ women, that all of us face discrimination. And um, the main reason why we have this discrimination is because we're victims and mainly we're victims of the behavior of men. That, that is the narrative. Now, as Muslims, there are a few questions we need to ask. You know, we're not dumb. We don't need to absorb and just go with the flow. When it, we're told something and it's the media, it's books, it's, you know, it, we're getting it every day. But we need to stop and just ask a few questions about this viewpoint. Um, so number one, what should we support and call for? You know, as far as ideas, we have a choice what, who and what we decide to support and what we put our energy into. So that's something we need to ask ourselves. Um, you know, uh, the other thing we need to think is how do we support or march for or campaign for, you know, ideas? How, you know, in our daily lives, how do we do that? So, for example, what I mean is, you know, that we, through the, uh, you know, whether it's through the social media we decide to follow, whether it's through the books that we give our daughters to read, whether it's the programs we watch, whether it's the people that we then, um, you know, advocate and applaud. These are all the ways which we support ideas that we believe in. So, you know, if we're doing that, we need to then think carefully, what are we calling for? What are we supporting? Who are we empowering? Who are we taking as role models? I know that's a lot to think about, but we need to think um, carefully about those things because are we, um, let's just say, are we empowering women who, uh, actually, and men who are, calling for the for truth and justice defined by Allah and his messenger or are we supporting and empowering people who disobey Allah who don't believe in Allah who don't think the messenger was the messenger who you know the mercy for mankind who is at the best example you know because if we're not then you know if we say we believe in the Quran and so we believe in the shahada should we not then be supporting and empowering people who also are calling for Islam, who are working for Islam, rather than their own, you know, whims and desires? Okay, so now, I, what I'd like, let's think about practically what happens in the Muslim communities that we live in. And so, and think of the social media communities that we see as well. So there's, you know, now, what I have noticed, and this is something that um, I'm noticing more, is that we're expected to applaud anything that a Muslim woman does nowadays. And, and for example, so if, um, you know, a woman wants to become an MP in the UK, so a member of parliament, we've got the elections happening now, or a congresswoman in the US, we are told that we should vote for her and we're told that we should donate money to her campaign or get involved. That's what I'm seeing. Um, you have Muslim organizations, you have mosques um, who are advocating and saying to the Muslim community that 
you should support this woman just purely because she's Muslim and because she's woman. And that that's one thing I'm noticing. Um, if a woman is a model or a makeup artist or a um, hijab, you know, uh, someone who sells hijab as a hijab brand, if she becomes famous, if she gets a contract with like really big multinational brand, again, suddenly it's, we should applaud her. We should support her. Yeah. And, you know, think of, you know, when people post these things and all the messages you read, everyone's saying, oh, this is amazing. You've achieved so much. This is brilliant. You know, that's what we are seeing. We see. Um, if she is an activist, whether it's she's a lawyer or, um, you know, any kind of human rights activist, um, and she's going on marches with non-Muslims, you know, and so she's calling for rights so okay you'll have women who are calling for refugee rights for abortion rights for lgbtq rights again that is seen as a good thing we should amplify her voice she should get a, be given a platform in, in amongst the muslim community um you know and then there's more even on the shallow end if you there's a woman who's an actress and she gets like a really little small hole in a hollywood movie Again, that's applauded. And I'm sure you've seen this. This is happening. And again, what I want to get us to think about is, um, should we really be amplifying these voices? Should we be um, you know, thinking just blindly that this is a good thing, all these actions are good? Or should we be stopping and thinking, are these actions and behaviors what Allah tells us to do in the Quran? Are these goals that, the, that Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is that what he prescribed Muslim women and or men in the same breath to be doing? And, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with asking those questions. That doesn't make you a hater. It doesn't make you, it doesn't mean you're jealous of their achievements. Um, and, um, what, as I was listening to Janice Fiamingo, she doesn't blindly accept the actions of her fellow liberal secular women. You know, that is what her belief is. That's what she is. So then why is it wrong for Muslims to question the public behavior of our fellow Muslim sisters, whether they are wearing hijab and niqab or not covering at all? That is something I would like us to, to think about. So I'm going to end the podcast with Janice again. She now gives her views on equality. And in particular, I think the point she makes about how women use their sexuality and beauty to um, get better positions in work, you know, that the how is that equal? You know, how, how is that right? And I've seen it, I'm sure you've seen it in your workplace, that women do do that and no one calls them out on it. And men, if they did the same thing, you know, would, would they be called out on it? You know, can they even do that, to be honest? Um, but yeah, and I'd just like to mention that just because I'm agreeing with some points of, with Janice, I don't agree with her views on secularism, on liberalism or on Islam. But let's listen to what Janice has got to say. 
From what I have observed, women often claim they want to be treated equally based on a perception that men are treated better than women. This is the explicit or implicit assumption in nearly all feminist discourse that the workplace and society in general is a fair and friendly place if you're male. What women often mean when they talk about being treated equally then is that they want to be treated well. They want their good qualities recognized and rewarded, their bad qualities overlooked or understood. With no standard of comparison, because most women don't know or don't care to know the experience of men, many women perceive any form of unpleasantness in their work lives as evidence of gender bias, whether it's a critical boss or a poor performance review. And this is understandable. Most people, given the chance, will prefer to believe themselves unfairly treated than to admit inadequacy. Add to that the feminist worldview that male prejudice is the sea in which women are forced to swim, and you've got a lot of women pumped up about injustice and keen for government to make more laws to combat it. By the way, what I've always found notable is the manner in which our public discussions focus on discriminations against women in the workplace, and never about the bias that works in women's favor. If we're going to talk about discrimination, an equally interesting question is how many women have been unfairly advantaged because of their femaleness, especially if they're nice-looking women? We've all heard about the sexual harassment that women don't like, but we hear nothing about the way sexual attractiveness advantages women, getting them extra assistance from coworkers, special favors from their supervisors, time off, raises, sales contracts, and so on. I'd love a survey that questioned women and men about the instances they've witnessed or experienced of a woman who rose through the ranks at her workplace because she played on men's lust or chivalry. That's a form of inequality that most women keep quiet about, just as you don't hear many women complaining about the inequality of hiring practices that discriminate against men. In fact, many women insist on them. When feminists and the women who support them use the word equality, they frequently refer to equality of result rather than equality of opportunity, with the claim made that because women are not equally represented in certain prestigious fields of work, they're never worrying, of course, about janitorial services or ditch digging, but because women aren't equally represented at the top, that's proof that women are being kept out of those top fields. There's a lot of talk recently about the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. A lot of worry about the underrepresentation of women. Now, even a moment's reflection should reveal that there are likely many reasons why women are not working in particular fields or showing achievements equivalent to men, ranging from the free choices they make to their actual capacities in these fields. But the question of women's capacities has become a forbidden subject in polite society. And that's really too bad because it means that a great deal of time, energy, and other resources are being spent in potentially wasteful or even damaging ways, promoting women, formulating policies to encourage them, and witch-hunting naysayers and truth-tellers.